You're listening to The Served Up Show, a podcast that features inspiring beverage professionals and topic experts that share their passions through meaningful content. Your hostesses, Bridget Albert, is best known as the Market Fresh Mixologist, an industry mentor with over 25 years of experience. And I'm Julie Milroy, best known for my passion for leading change and helping others grow in their careers. Grab a cocktail and sit back. Let's learn how we can make a positive impact in our industry. Welcome to a very special episode with entrepreneur and author of Spirit Sugar Water Bitters, How the Cocktail Conquered the World, Derek Brown. Derek is a trusted expert on the topic of prohibition in America. Folks, he literally holds the title of Chief Spirits Advisor for our National Archives Foundation in Washington, D.C. Derek's book, In My Personal Point of View, is the most important book about the history of drinks in America, a book every beverage professional or cocktail geek should have in their library. Sit back and enjoy our spirited conversation about America's prohibition and why we should celebrate repeal day. Hey, Derek, thank you so much for being on the Served Up podcast today. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me, Bridget. I'm really excited to have you here and to talk about one of the topics that I think that we both have a great shared passion for, and that is prohibition and America's repeal of the noble experiment. Yes, we even did a, a some a panel together. Well, at least I was I was organizing the panel back at the uh, 2015 in the National Archives, where you were part of that, right? Yes, I was part of that, and it was one of the highlights of my career. So thank you. It was just so awesome to be there in D.C. with you, you know, really speaking about this shared love topic. Um, and also, you know, you were, what was it, one of the curators for the um, National History Museum in D.C. for their Prohibition exhibit. Oh, that so that was all part of the National Archives. So the National Archives Foundation um, had me as their uh, chief spirits advisor. And if it sounds like a completely nonsense title, it is. So <laughs> I did, of course, out of you know propriety, not use the term that I wanted to uh, with the initials BS. Um, so it's a BS title, and um, I thought that it was going to be something entirely different. Like when they first invited me to do it, they were like, hey, we're looking for somebody to help work with us on this Spirited Republic exhibit uh, that has all of these you know, documents and some artifacts from throughout American history. Alcohol, you know, it's been a huge part of the American experience. And I was excited because the National Archives, right? Like I'm thinking Nicolas Cage and that there's some treasure vault somewhere full of like this ancient booze and that like maybe I'll be able to like crack open George Washington's rye whiskey or, or, or a bottle of wine from Thomas Jefferson or something like that. Nope, they didn't have anything like that. Then they were like, no, we just want you to help us promote this exhibit. So, so I did. And I was really actually still flattered to do it. Um, but what happened was I was looking through the exhibit and it, it went through, you know, from the foundations of the Republic to, um, the present day. And they didn't really say much about cocktails, which I think is kind of a little bit of a miss, 
you know, because everything else is great. So many, uh, you know, they had like a rep, replica of George Washington still. They had like Lewis and Clark's, um, uh, I guess, receipt for all the alcohol they bought on their trip. That's a lot yeah. of people think about. And it was a huge amount, by the way. And, you know, they had like things like that. So it was really cool and interesting. But um, I said, well, why don't we do this? Why don't we, you know, tap like 30 experts from the U.S., you know, uh, people like yourself who, you know, bartenders, historians, writers um, who have, you know, learned about this, the different, you know, kind of discrete periods in history, starting with before the cocktail all, all the way to the present the platinum age. I don't know. I'm going to say something about that. Um, I don't know if we're in the platinum age anymore. I mean, it, it's kind of like the COVID era that kind of like dominates all things, but I won't go too much into that because it shouldn't be depressing, but, but it went all the way to the platinum age. And um, we had, you know, all these different experts, you, David Wondrich, uh, Julie Reiner, uh, Tony Abogadam, just some amazing personalities and people. And so it was really cool. Um, and that was became the foundation of my book, uh, Spirit, Sugar, Water, Bitters, How I Conquered the World. Well, let's talk about your book because I really think, and listeners, I hope that you write this down um, right now and go and get yourself a copy because Derek's book, Spirit, Sugar, Water, Bitters, How the Cocktail Conquered the World, I feel is the most important cocktail book of our time. Because in Derek's writings, he really lays the foundation of our industry, of our cocktail, and how it's intertwined with American history and how impactful spirits were um, in creating um, our country. So this is a book. It's a must-have for any history buff, any cocktail geek, or anyone that's really interested on how our country came to be. So Derek, I personally thank you for writing this book. I think that it's just fantastic in the way that you tell the story and the stories that you tell. It's interesting. It's not a dry read whatsoever. Um, well, you- I thank you for that endorsement. That's great. But but definitely like one of the ideas behind this book was how would I tell a person the story of a cocktail if it was from behind a bar? Right. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, obviously, I, you know, there's a, a dry history literally behind it. Um, and we'll get into that. But we're talking about prohibition. But there is, um, you know, some just plain facts, you know, stuff that, that academia is made of. But but it's a story about a drink that's pretty dynamic and something that people often experience over the bar. So I thought, well, you know, that's how I learned about it. That's how I speak about it. So let me go ahead and write this book with the same kind of, you know, um, point of view. So, so it's really, you know, it's going, it goes through several thousand years of history, um, but it's a short, uh, I think 219 pages. I've forgotten now, but it's think 219 pages. And it is, um, you know, as told over a bar. So I think it's it's a fun read too. Oh, it's a really fun read, and it really gives you great appreciation for the cocktails that are served over the bar, for sure. Uh, I love to know, and I think our listeners would love to know as well, your perspective on you know how and why prohibition began in the United States. Yeah, it's it's interesting because I think that. Um, at some point, it might have surprised people, you know, maybe during a different political era when it, where things were a little more calm. They'd be surprised how quickly things can roll and get out of hand. You know what I mean? But 
in our era, I don't think anybody. And so looking back on prohibition, there's not one thing that created it, right? There is there is a temperance movement that, you know, starts um, in in really the beginning of the Republic, but but gains a lot of ground in the 19th century. And, and this temperance movement is not all about prohibition. You know, it is it was also about just hey, drink too much and we need to reduce our consumption in, in less, not less polite terms, but in different terms, uh, because there was also a religious idea behind it as well. Um, and, and Abraham was a part of that. And, and there were so many people who were attached to that movement in some way. But, but then later on, it, it gained steam and became prohibition, literally pro- prohibiting the sale and uh, purchase of alcohol, or the sale, purchase, and transportation of alcohol. Um, but I will say this: um, it was not a bad instinct to have temperance. Americans did drink too much, and so from from a point of view of you know uh, people caught in, in that era who were seeing some of the devastation wrought by that, um, it was a bad response, temperance that is. Prohibition was a terrible response, but temperance itself was smart. Now you couple that with uh, women's suffrage and you couple that with, um, you know, uh, bigotry and, um, you know, xenophobia and, and it's a perfect storm, you know? And so prohibition really was not like a singular cause. It was the seed, seeded by the temperance movement and, you know, watered by these other factors like, um, the women's suffrage, women's suffrage and the um, and xenophobia. Yeah. Um, what year did it begin? Well, it depends where you're talking about. And that's an interesting. So, so most people refer to prohibition as 1919 to 1933. And that is pretty much this, you know, going from amendment to amendment in the Constitution. Uh, keep in mind that um, oh, there's... Alcohol is the only thing that has two amendments within the Constitution, right? So that will show you just alone how important alcohol is to our country. But um, but it actually started in bits and pieces before that. Since in Washington D.C., we went dry in 1917. That's where I'm um, I'm calling from right now is Washington D.C. or zooming from as you were. So um, so in some places it hit earlier, and and there were different types of prohibition. So. In some cases, it might be the sale and transportation. In other cases, it might be uh, distilleries, um, produ- you know, distillery production. So, so it was kind of a patchwork, and then it came together in this amendment, and and that was it. You know, after that, um, you know, it became a law of the land. So, so, so it was really just a, a patchwork of, of regulations at first, and then became the amendment. Let's talk a little bit, Derek, about what was going on, you know, when Prohibition really hit in 1920. Um, it really did a great upheaval for so many things within our country. A lot of change um, happened during that time. And I would love to talk through that with you. You know, what was happening with our bars, with the hospitality industry, especially during that time? And uh, what were some of the good and the bad and the ugly that came out of that era? Yeah. Well, um, you know, let's talk before prohibition, like a little bit um, before that. Um, there, That's what we refer to as the golden age of cocktails, 
right? We're talking about a period from 1860s to Prohibition itself. And this was a time where all the cocktails that, you know, we kind of admire and revere today were created. So for some people, there's this idea that, you know, Prohibition created the cocktail, right? So like the common kind of like myth is that, oh, the alcohol was so terrible that people had to adulterate it. They had to, you know, mix it with stuff. And, and that is true in some cases, but, but the expertly mixed cocktails like the martini, Manhattan daiquiri all came before uh, prohibition. So, so that's why we refer to it as the golden age of cocktails, because it really is the foundations of mixology, if you will. That's the, the drinks and the sort of ideas that we use today when we're creating cocktails. So, um, so that was before it. And then obviously it came to um, a, a screeching halt. And um, there was, like I said, re reasons for that. There, there, you know, people were drinking too much. Um, that, 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 be, that there was domestic violence was an issue around that. Um, people obviously taking their paychecks and just like wiping, wiping them out by drinking was a part of that. Um, so, so there were solid reasons to, for people to cut back drinking. So I want to, I want to put that out there. Um, but effectively what it did is it didn't stop drinking at all. It just drove it underground. And, and so I think a lot of us know that. And, and, you know, that's when we have this kind of, you know, romanticism around the gangs that uh, sprang up and all of this sort of like underground economy that formed around alcohol. Um, but it's not very romantic at all. I mean, it was just kind of murderous and uh, terrible. <laughs> so I think that, um, you know, it, it, it started out with a good idea and it started at a time where cocktails were the best they are. Um, and it, it sort of buried both of those things, the good idea and cocktails. What were bartenders doing, doing during that time? You know, you know, we kind of compared a little bit to COVID right now. So many hospitality workers, um, you know, they, they cannot do their gig because of either their local law or their state law um, due to the pandemic. And the pandemic in that time was really a prohibition, you know, for, yeah. for all the years. My God, hopefully COVID won't last as long. But what would you do? God's years. Um, if you so, were a bartender, what, what was your options? So I, I like to take this example of a D.C. bartender, very famous D.C. bartender in D.C. At, uh, at least. His name was Henry William Thomas. And Henry William Thomas um, worked at Shoemakers, which is a very you know, a famous bar from D.C. It was even mentioned in the um, congressional record, right? There was a Judge Cowan who was giving testimony before the, um, before the Agricultural Committee and mentioned how shoemakers, everyone knows it has the best whiskey in D.C. Um, so this is a, you know, famous bar. He worked there. He worked at uh, a couple other famous D.C. bars. Um, and then Prohibition had. And he started working at a place called the Chevy Chase Club, which still exists to this day. And that is, you know, Chevy's Maryland. So um, that's that's like, you know, about 30 minutes, 45 minutes outside of D.C. And so essentially he went there to work and he was noted as a soda jerk. Right. So he was supposed to be tending bar and serving sodas. But the likelihood that he did that is so low 
right? Mm-hmm. Chevy Chase Club was the some of the most powerful people in the United States, men uh, at that time, it was women were excluded. And, um, you know, it's very unlikely that these guys were like, okay, fine. We're just gonna, you know, drink the cola. We're cool. Uh, we don't need alcohol. I'm sure that he went over there to, to mix booze. Um, and in fact, during 1920, 1926, he put out a cocktail book, which is DC's the, the only cocktail book I know to come out of DC um, prior to pro- Prohibition or actually during Prohibition. It was called The Life and Times of Henry William Tho- Thomas Mixologist. And so, um, so he puts this book out. Uh, it's published, self-published kind of in, in 1926 and 1929. Um, um, so the likelihood that he was just, you know, mixing sodas and his book was just kind of a romantic, you know, like look upon the past of making cocktails is, is, is very unlikely. So they were mixing drinks, uh, although, although some of them were also forced to go overseas um, to Europe or uh, even to South America and, and others just changed jobs and some retired. I mean, in fact, we lost some of the, you know, knowledge that's just passed down person to person because obviously we have books and that sort of thing, um, recipes, but there is something about learning it from the person themselves. There's little tricks. And I know you know that because no matter how many books we put out that have recipes, people are still like, I can't make a cocktail like you can make. That's because, (laughs) yeah, yeah, there's, There's there's tricks that we use that we don't really talk about, you know, or we we there's a standard we don't really think of. Exp- um, and so those things that are we're not really taught. And so after prohibition, there was a, a, a kind of void in terms of bartenders. There wasn't, um, you know, these well-trained young bartenders who were looking to take on the world. It was it was a different kind of forecast. Derek, was the White House dry during Prohibition? Do we know? Uh, I mean, no. Yes, <laughs> I guess. But, but no, I, I, I doubt it. Um, and I think D.C. in general was the wettest city in America. I mean, because it was an open secret. I mean, they would drop off um, cases of booze at Congress. It, it, it was one of the funny things about Prohibition is it was always this idea that like, oh, the other person has a problem. We're good. Like we're not causing crime. We're, you know, we're not causing anybody any harm. Drinking is okay for us. It's just not okay for them. And in some cases that was um, other races, other cultures, other nationalities. Um, So, so it was, you know, the people in DC, the white men in Congress, and, and, and the presidency, I'm sure they were like, it's fine for me. Uh, it's just not good for other people. And, and actually, I think a lot of these people who, you know, even voted for prohibition, they were kind of bullied into it in a way. You know, they, were, they, they sort of had to say it. It was part of, a, um, you know, otherwise they, they would kind of be harangued for being, a, you know, an alcoholic. Um, and so there's even some like, uh, I'll tell you one, this one story um, that actually goes before Prohibition. There was actually a bar in Congress. Actually, there was a restaurant in the Senate. And there was a bar there, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so a lot of the senators 
and congressmen would drink there. And it was, um, it actually, I think it was 1911, uh, I have to double check that, but in 1911, when it was, you know, um, as part of a, um, a law, it was an, added on to it that they would close the, the bar and that Congress would be dry. Um, so the, the people who, you know, kind of pushed that were just really shamed into doing it, ultimately. It wasn't like Congress wanted to stop drinking or ever did, you know, felt like it was an issue that they had to go along with. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes perfect sense. Um, absolutely. They don't want to be seen as, you know, people that are drinking too much and out there doing some bad things. You know, prohibition to me is terribly fascinating because of so many um, things that came out of prohibition that I'm hoping that you can share with us, like, you know, how race car driving became a thing like NASCAR, for instance, you know, and some of the other fun things, let's say, that came out of the noble experiment. Yeah, well, there, like you said, there are some things that there's always a silver lining, even, you know, even when bad things happen and certainly not worth the bad things that happened, but it, it, it happened. Um, and in this case, I guess you could call it NASCAR, one of the silver linings, because essentially, you know, um, uh, bootleggers, you know, who, who were shipping this alcohol um, all over the place, they had to create really fast cars to, to ship it and outrun the police. So there's a much longer history of NASCAR there, but I'll save that for your um, episode with somebody about NASCAR specifically. Um, but, but NASCAR came out of it. And, and another kind of interesting thing that came out of it that I like to talk about is Tiki. So um, Tiki had a lot of different kind of like things that fed it. And certainly um, World War II was part of that as well. Um, or World War I, World War II. Um, and, and GIs traveling around the globe, basically. Um, so, you know, Tiki is this sort of like faux Polynesian um, aesthetic, you know, and all these cocktails around it are based off of great classic cocktails. It was um, a guy named Ernest Gant, Don the Beachcomber, who really started Tiki. He was followed up by um, Vic Bergeron or Trader Vic. And they, you know, um, came up with this after Prohibition. And one of the things that was really common in it was rum, right? And rum was one of the most common spirits after Prohibition because, um, you know, the whiskey industry in the United States had been virtually decimated. And, you know, we were not getting um, importation during that time of alcohol. So there was a glut of rum. Uh, that was the closest one to our to our country. Um, it was one of the easier ones to make as well, and so we got a lot of rum. and And so Tiki took advantage of that and has lots of great recipes with all these different types of rum. I'm glad that you mentioned um, American whiskey and what was happening because you know during Prohibition there was a very small hand select group of distillers are really allowed to still make whiskey, you know, for medicinal, I'm putting in air quotes, you can't see me, but I'm doing that, <laughs> medicinal purposes, right? Where 
from the stories that I know that you could um, get a prescription for. And it would be either prescribed like once a day, twice a day, or as needed. Ed, can you talk to us just a bit about the American whiskey experience during Prohibition? Yeah. Um, so you could get, and this is another way that um, wealthy or powerful people could get around um, Prohibition. They could just order alcohol from their doctor in my cocktail bar in Washington, D.C. We have actually, you know, these sort of framed prescriptions for, for in some cases, it will say Spiritus Fermented or SF. Um, and that sort of like is, yeah, it's whiskey, but that's the Latin. Um, or in some cases, we have a few that say whiskey specifically. So, so it's kind of strange. Definitely, if alcohol was helpful for you, which it really isn't, but if it was helpful for you um, and it was prescribed, why would you need whiskey specifically? You know, you kind of have to think about that. It's like, oh, okay. Um, uh, that was definitely, you know, a kind of workaround for getting alcohol to people who were powerful and wealthy. They always have a workaround, don't they? They always have some way of, of getting it done. Yeah, I mean, for sure. Uh, what are some other things that came out of prohibition? You know, one of the things that I think of, you know, you mentioned women's suffrage, and I would love to talk with you about that and some of the opportunities that came out of prohibition for women. Because I know before prohibition, it was really unsightly and un seemly for a woman to be in a bar. And if she was in a bar before 1919, she was most likely a woman of the night, right? A prostitute. And so, you know, during prohibition, it really was the first time or one of the first times, at least in America, where women and men could enjoy a cocktail together in public, you know, at a bar and have yeah. a damn good time doing it. So let's talk a little bit about that and the changes of the drinking culture in our country that came out of prohibition. Yeah, sandwich 18th and 21st amendments that deal with alcohol is the 19th amendment. Women were given the right to vote, um, which was long overdue. And so that was an important time, the suffrage movement, for those who, who don't know, that's the movement pushing for the right to vote. And um, it got tied into um, prohibition itself because this was women asserting themselves um, both in the political sphere, but also acknowledging some of the, the powerlessness that they felt were faced in their own households. And so I think that, um, you know, th those things kind of got stuck together. Um, but but it, at some point that also helped it come apart and also advocated for the end of prohibition. So, so women were a powerful political voice throughout this whole process. Um, but it is true that women weren't really drinking a lot in bars. You know, they, maybe they were drinking in parlors or, uh, you know, in their, in their homes or whatever. But um, there were was, there was some opportunities for women to, to both drink in bars and bartend. And, and sometimes that might be like a, sec, sec, a separate area or they might be able to literally carry spirit it's out um, or beer out of the bar. So, so there was, you know, some, you know, opportunities for wintering, but, but definitely prohibition because it was illegal. It all of a sudden changed the whole, you know, landscape of it. And women were now 
in bars, um, uh, speakeasies or illegal bars. And they were drinking alongside men, like you said. Um, that's sort of that image we have in our head of the flapper, you know, um, that sort of short haircuts and dresses with, um, gosh, I don't even know. That's Nobody's a gonna, fringe, Derek. Lots yeah. of fringe. <laughs> Nobody's going to accuse me of being fashion, uh, you know, knowledgeable. But but so I think that like you know that that was a interesting and cool, and it definitely just in general was women starting to find their voice and seeing how powerful they are they were and are. And so I think that that in that way, it was a great thing to come out of prohibition. Right. I mean, we, yeah. Um, and obviously it's still a long process. Um, but, but that's what's what helped to kick it off. Um, and, and women found their voices in different ways, some in, in a political context, some in their household and social context, but, but one of the most notorious women are was a woman in Carrie Nation. Do you know that story? I know that with the hatchet. Yeah, yeah. let's kill it. Hatchet oh, wheeling, you know. Good and so start. you know, the Women's Christian Temperance Union was this was the like powerhouse behind um prohibition and women's rights. Um and so they would go and they would like sing outside of bars, you know, like sing, sing hymns because the religious aspect is a huge part of temperance and trying to get men to drink less. And so uh, one woman took it way beyond that. She was like, nope, we're not having this and took an ax and basically um, walked into the bar and started smashing it up, smashing the bottles, smashing the bar, threatening all those inside. So she took it all into her own hands and later became a, sadly a little bit of a caricature of herself um, because she became famous for this and people wanted her to speak and see her hatchet and so forth. Um, but but at first you could imagine the rage and powerlessness just like transformed into this moment of just smashing a bar. Um, yeah, can't say, can't say I blame her in some ways. You know? No, I can't say I blame her either. And I think that she scared the crap out of the men that were in the bar. I can't even imagine that is, that's someone coming in with a hatchet and breaking up the bar and the mirrors and the bottles. My goodness. Well, that would uh, definitely ruin my, you know, whiskey for the night. I would just go home after that. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, something else that came out of Prohibition is, you know, like I love to talk about bathtub gin and home distilling. Um, on my, I am Polish and Irish, Italian. I have a little French in me, but on my father's side of the family, they're Polish and Irish. And on our Polish side, my great grandmother was making gin in their bathtub and oh, wow. at home, and they were selling it. And I know that the number one um, selling product. And the Sears Robot catalog was juniper oil during that time because people were, of course, purchasing it, right, to make their bathtub gin. What I found interesting, very interesting, that it was my great grandmother making the bathtub gin versus, and she had 10 children, by the way, with mm -hmm. her husband, with my great grandfather. It wasn't the men, it was the women because the men had to go off to work. And so it was her and her daughters making the gin and selling it. And you could pay her in two ways. You could pay her with coal or with cash because that's how they heated their home was with coal. And they had a, a storage shed for coal in the back, the backyard. But I think that that story is very common for a lot of people in the United States during that time. And I can tell you that my family still sold that gin through the 1960s because their neighborhood was so used to it. So. Yeah. 
that's a story for another day. But let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, that the home experience, what was happening at home with alcohol? Were we entertaining more? Were most folks trying to make their own spirits and sell them and to drink them? Yeah. Uh, well, that's an awesome story, Bree. Thanks for yeah. sharing. Um, <laughs> and and I, I have a story somewhat similar, um, a little different. Uh, my great grandfather uh, was a guy named Harvey Callahan, and he was actually the chief of police in D.C. at one point. But before he was the chief of police in D.C., he was a, a police officer in D.C. And um, my grandmother shared that he would make wine in the house. So he would actually, you know, make wine. Obviously, he purchased uh, grapes or what have you. I don't, I don't know the whole process. She never really shared that. Um, and she was young um, at that time. Mm-hmm. But, but yeah, if a police officer is making wine, then, you know, you can imagine. <laughs> uh, but, but there was, you know, for certain, you know, there were certain religious dispensations, you know, people who, um, you know, Catholics and, and, and Jewish uh, people who were used it as a sacramental um, it was part of their sacrament, and that was certainly um, allowed to some degree. And um, so, yeah, so Harvey Callahan made his own wine. Um, and, and in general, yeah, people were drinking at home. And, and again, it, it, it wasn't actually illegal to drink, right? You can't make it illegal to consume alcohol. What was illegal was to sell or transport alcohol. So if you happen to have alcohol. And this might go back to the White House question too, right? If you have to have alcohol, then you were perfectly within your right. To drink it and to enjoy it. But wasn't, you know, I can imagine, I just think back of like my my great-grandmother, her name was Hippolyte, and I can't imagine her making this gin in the bathtub and it being always so safe to drink, (laughs) you know? So, I mean, what was happening with that as far as safety and the homemade spirits that were being distributed throughout the United States? Yeah, I mean, definitely when something is unregulated, um, it, there's different levels of potency. That's that's not even that strange in our time either because of a certain other substance. Um, but but uh, yeah, and, and people were, you know, were making... Um, uh, their own alcohol. In some cases, it, it might not have been the best quality or product, but but it was oft, it wasn't often poisonous, um, but it was occasionally poisonous. And there is even this example. And gosh, I hadn't th- I haven't thought of this for a, a long time, um, but there was an example of the United States being aware of poisonous alcohol actually allowed it to be distributed. Um, Yikes! With the idea with the idea that it was just going to kill drunks anyway. You know, and, and it's funny, I should have a backup document for that story. <laughs> um, but it was in a book that I'm going to have to think of before the end of this podcast, or because I don't want to just drop that bomb and then be like, like, the conspiracy. You know, it really happened. And it was in this one particular book um, that I'll have to I'll have to think of before the end of the podcast um, so that people believe me. Well, I mean, I think that this is what just makes this time period incredibly fascinating um, because it does seem like a dream and things like that, like you just mentioned, like how could that possibly be? And I want to go back to something that you mentioned, and that was organized crime. Because, you know, you talked about this wasn't really a romantic time. It was definitely 
almost like the wild, wild west, pretty much. We went back to during Prohibition. At least I can speak to here in Chicago for sure. Um, it was, you know, really the first time that that these gangs um, became organized. They organized themselves and were able to make a whole lot of money during Prohibition. So um, I would love for you to speak a bit about what was happening on the crime side of things. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it, it led to you know, these huge syndicates who were transporting alcohol, um, you know, to the United States and they were distributed within the United States. And um, and it just increased crime. That, that's the irony of all this is one of the ideas that um, the temperance movement had, especially the prohibition one was like, hey, once we get rid of alcohol, there will be no crime. Right. Like it sounds so <laughs> ridiculous, but that was part of the propaganda around it. You know, uh, crime is called by, caused by alcohol. Of course it is. Um, and that's not to say that it can't be influenced, but but obviously that was wrong um, because it only increased the power of criminals and, and created and helped expand these uh, criminal organizations, um, which was tragic. Again, you know, like a lot of things that we look back and have these sort of romantic notions of sometimes like I, I kind of kind of think, wow, like, we, should, we really should not romanticize these gangsters. They were, in, in many cases, ruthless and, and obviously killed people um, and harmed people and, and created, um, you know, these awful conditions um, for people living in certain neighborhoods um, or certain ethnic communities. And, oh, I, mean, I mean, absolutely. And they made a lot of money during prohibition, you know, on alcohol and by shaking down the speakeasies, you know, these illegal bars and just kind of going back to my, my grandparents, even, you know, my grandpa, Henry and his brother, much older brother, Lori, and my grandpa was a little kid uh, during prohibition, but they would uh, borrow a car from the neighborhood and the car was like completely gutted the back of it whereas they could fit grandma's bottles in there and they would drive it in the back roads of from Joliet, Illinois up to Chicago uh, and they'd pay off police officers along the way and they would sell it, um, you know, to speakeasies in the city. And one of those speakeasies is still around and it's called the green door in Chicago, which is really interesting. But, you know, I think that it's during prohibition families really had to do what they needed to do to survive. And a lot of them depended on crimes and on the crime families, you know, um, as well as terrible as some of the crime family. I'm saying my family is a crime family, but, you know, some of the the big criminals out there like Al Capone probably is the most infamous out of all of them, especially during this era. He, he obviously was criminally minded and certainly like um, capable of running this uh, empire, but at the same time, um, apparently at some point, syphilis, and it just ate away his brain until he was a babbling idiot. Um, so, again, maybe not the person to romanticize, uh, but but I wanted to I wanted to throw uh, something else out there. I um, shouldn't have, but I picked up my phone while we were talking um, so that I could fact check myself on this uh, government poisoning people during prohibition. Prohibition, and recently the USA uh, USA Today 
posted an article on June 30th in 2020 by Matthew Brown, no relation to me. Um, and it's said called fact check. It's true. U.S. government poisoned some alcohol during prohibition. So to redeem myself and make sure I'm not just spreading, you know, uh, myths, that is a true thing. That so, is a very um, true thing, Derek. So what's interesting about the crime syndicates is there's one place they didn't really develop, and that is in Washington, D.C. Um, some people might argue it's because we already, already had the largest crime syndicate here uh, called Congress, um, <laughs> but it also might be because of the fact that it was such an open secret. It was perfectly fine in some ways to drink. There were hundreds of speakeasies um, and, and people did it all the time. Yeah, they did. And, you know, I think in the speakeasies, especially it, it was um, a lot of politicians that were enjoying drinks in the speakeasies as well as police officers. Right. Yeah. Have you seen Boardwalk Empire? Oh, I love that show. Yeah. I was once obsessed with it. I guess you know, there's been so many great shows since then that are like, you know, the it shows that I, I people might have forgotten about Boardwalk Empire. But it's a cool, you know, cool to go back and look at it. And if I'm mistaken, Ted Hay, who is such a great uh, um, a person who, you know, you know, but uh, to tell everyone else, uh, he wrote um, uh, Vintage Spirits and Forgotten Cocktails. Mm -hmm. um, and he was part of the Museum of the American Cocktail. Um, and he was a consultant for that show. As far as I know, that's amazing. And all the Canadian club that was rolling into Jersey during that time. Oh, yeah. My gosh, it was so crazy. Um, can you tell us, Derek? So, when were we at our peak at Prohibition and what caused it to end? Um, I mean, I guess it kind of, you know, along the way reached this sort of, you know, as you said, this peak, um, because everyone was breaking the law. I mean, you had an entire country full of, you know, people who were, were essentially, you know, criminals, I guess, in some way, you know, they were doing something that was illegal and that had it, right? I mean, uh, ultimately, if everybody's drinking and everyone thinks it's the other person that has a problem, um, and the, and the commerce is continuing. It's just in the hands of now crime syndicates. Um, there had to be a change. And, and it was, like I said, it was partly through groups that organized groups like, um, you know, um, women's groups even uh, that, that started to push for an end to it uh, because it wasn't working. And, and it definitely did not achieve what it sought out to do, which was, again, to make this peaceful and crime-free world um, in the United States. It didn't happen. It didn't happen. Do you think that we're still recovering a bit from prohibition? Do you think that we fully recovered? Absolutely still recovering. And the world is not learning a damn lesson. Actually. <laughs> because, I, I you know, agree with you. I don't get too much into the politics of it because I know it's not why you invited me on the show and it's nothing that I really am involved in the politics of. But, but I think it, it, it's pretty easy to see the parallels with prohibition and other substances in the United States, other recreational substances. Um, and, and, and all the parallels are there, right? I mean, mm -hmm. the underground economy, the criminal, crim, criminal syndicates around it, the fact that, you know, many Americans are, are just breaking the law, um, the fact that there are political sides to this, um, the fact that there is 
Um, even there are, there are some medical provisions and, and people are starting to legalize it, but, it, but, but, you know, you look at it and you're like, what did we learn? Yeah. Well, I think you're talking about marijuana. I mean, right. It's, it is a great comparison. Um, and you're exactly right. I mean, look at during prohibition, you could get a prescription for whiskey today. You can get a prescription for edibles if you need them. If you're not in a place that maybe you can just go to a dispensary. So you're right. You haven't learned anything. And, you know, and we're not <laughs> reaping the taxes from that, which would probably be helpful just about now. But but I would say that also the rest of the world didn't learn because there are still countries, you know, just as recently as um, this summer in South Africa, for about five months, they banned alcohol. Oh, and that that just... I have friends actually that live in South Africa. One of my dear friends, Sean Stadeven, he actually has a brewery in South Africa. And my God, the stories that he can tell you, you That's know, right. it's very scary what happened there. Yeah, and we're and then, lucky in the United States that at least we can do to-go cocktails. That's right. And in Mexico and in different places in the United States and throughout the world, Thailand, India, there were different experiments with how they could reduce or ban alcohol. And you know what? You know, what, again, what did we learn? Like, how could you possibly even think that that is a reasonable response at this point, um, based on the history of it, based on the fact that uh, nobody stops, you know, drinking alcohol. They just find it by other means. Or they yeah. make other means. And, and so even in the United States, where there were counties or cities that, um, you know, uh, banned liquor store sales or um, had restrictions on to go drinks and, and that, that stuff, people just cross the line to another county or another uh, state and then they got it there. So, I mean whatever but, but it's like but footloose think, like the movie footloose right there i'm gonna dance and dance there yeah so 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 I, I you know and here's the funny thing um bridget i don't really drink that much anymore i just don't um i drank a lot and i i i drank too much and and i i started changing my relationship with alcohol and, and now i feel very comfortable with it um and i don't drink a lot um and and i'm writing a second book on Low and no alcohol cocktails called Mindful. Oh, it will be coming out January 2022. If we all survive till then, please buy the book. Um, but and it is also unresolved. For 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 those of you who think ahead, write it down on a piece of paper, you know, like put it on a magnet on your fridge. <laughs> Mindful Mixology by Derek Brown. Rizzoli. Mindful Mixology. Did you hear that, listeners? We will uh-huh. have you back, Derek. I will have you back when you're ready for that. But in it, I found a lot of inspiration from temperance cocktails, right? Non-alcoholic cocktails that were made during temperance or, you know, temperance movement or, you know, uh, at the beginning of prohibition. So, so there, you know, I personally am not for a lot of drinking, but even though it hurts my bottom line at this point, I, I'm not for a lot of drinking. Sure. But I think the other side of that banning drinking is just plain stupid. Yeah, I agree with you. It's just plain ridiculous um, yeah. is what it is. What do you see 
next for our industry, Derek, as we're coming out of the dark time that we're in today, you know, as things gradually start to open, do you think that we will fully recover quickly? Do you think it's going to take many years? Or do you think that we will be um, approaching hospitality in a new way? Yeah, I, I think um, I have a couple of thoughts around that. One is that I do think that, you know, if this vaccine pans out, which it looks like it's going to, I think, you know, um, one of the uh, pharmaceutical companies just got approval recently. Um, and that's fantastic. Like we need it. That's going to be the real change in terms of hospitality. But there's still going to be a while for people to get the vaccination and not all people will actually get vaccinated. Um, and then we're going to have some problems around that, um, which is sad to say. But, but at that point, um, we will start to open up more. We'll have, you know, I, I can't I can't see bars and restaurants being fully operational without taking a tremendous risk until then. Um, you know, we are open outside because there's a lot less risk with outside and with a lot of partners in place that, that, that help with safety of our staff and safety of our guests. Uh, other places are just opening and, and I don't want to, I actually don't want to, um, you know, uh, say anything bad about any other bar or place, but, it, but it, it is without question risky. And I think that, um, until we get that back. Vaccine, we won't really have see restaurants and bars open fully. So I don't know, is that next summer? Is that next fall? Something like that. And then even then, there are some economic, you know, there is some ec economic fallout from all of this. And so will people be spending like they were before um, COVID? I, I don't know. And, and maybe this is a question better left to an economist, not a bartender. Um, but my instinct is that we are going to have a, a, at least a year of recovery, if not more. But but for for 2021, it's not going to be all of a sudden, you know, out of the gate all as well. Right. Um, I think we're going to still have challenges. And, and right now, you know, every other day I look. Um, at Twitter or, you know, a friend texts me about a bar that's closed and, and ones that I love, you know, in DC recently, we had um, two bars that I'm, I'm particularly fond of. One's the Gibson, which was where I started um, uh, sort of like making craft cocktails as a beverage manager. Mm -hmm. um, so it was like a little bit of a push and start for me at the Gibson and, and it closed down. Um, there's another place called Room 11, which was um, owned by many friends of mine. And it closed down. And so um, I think we're just going to see that happening um, all throughout the winter. Restaurants and bars are going to close. And the only thing that can fix that is Congress. Um, and Congress needs to get their act together on this. Because it is a bipartisan issue. Right. right? I mean, not to name names, but, but Republicans and Democrats are, are both supporting the idea that restaurants need help. And bars need help. Um, this industry has been tremendously hit, but there's no plan yet, or there is a plan, but it's not. You know, they haven't figured out all the little details around it, and um, it's not put in action. So that we need that, we need that immediately. And um, I, when does when does this um, podcast go out? 
on December 5th. Oh, repeal day. On repeal day on my birthday. Yeah. Very good. Well, I don't. Uh, oh, awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, happy birthday in advance. Yes. Thank you. Uh, so I don't really um, see us passing this before repeal day. So, so people get on the horn, bother your Congress people, bother your senators. We need help. Um, and, and it's great that people are out there um, ordering from restaurants and bars. We need that too. But the real help we need comes in a much larger dollar um, figures. So anyway, I'm off the soapbox. Um, as far as the recovery, I think, um, you know, we'll, we will recover. Um, not all of us, um, but, but, but many bars and restaurants will, will remain. And, and we hope that independent bars and restaurants can remain as well. Yeah. So um, how will it change hospitality and the bar industries? I think it's going to have a huge impact. I mean, I think just uh, in terms of health and safety, there's a seriousness that I don't think bars and restaurants, you know, had before. Um, bartenders, of course, wash their hands. They've always had to wash their hands. But did they really like wash their hands? You know what I mean? Was it like a quick under the sink, little dab of soap, move on? Um, right. Did they wear gloves when they handled garnishes? No. Um, that sort of thing. Um, when they were sick, were they kind of just pressured a little bit? by the management to come in anyway. And so things like that are going to go out the window, hopefully. Um, I really hope so, because people need to be safe. Um, and, and that's a huge issue. And so hopefully that'll change. But, but in terms of workers' health and safety, you know, making sure that they are well supported, that has to change too. We, we need to make sure that bartenders, um, you know, get health care. Uh, mm-hmm. We need to make sure that they are supported when they're sick, health issues. Not, you know, that's a big issue in our our, our industry as well. And, and so we need to provide support for that in some way. And so so I think hopefully that's going to change. And, and I think besides, you know, for a long time, there's sort of been this, you know, superstar mixologist and, and corresponding to the superstar chef. And this sort of like passionate person who was really changing the way the world looked at um, cocktails or food, and 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 I think that 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 is a little bit of a myth in the long run because anybody who is receiving that kind of recognition has an army behind them of people helping them, and so hopefully there's more recognition of the people behind the scenes um, and credit given to them for, um, you know, their support. I mean, you know, you can't live without a good bar back. You can't be a bar owner without great bartenders. You're and right. So, and so we need to acknowledge that. And so, um, though it may not ben- benefit superstar mixologist, Derek Brown, um, I'd like to see the death of superstar mixologists. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I think that you're exactly right. I think coming out of all this, that we're going to see a bigger focus on the team, yeah. right? bartenders um, working as a team. And Dale DeGroff actually um, made a comment similar to this um, very recently on a podcast I did with with him. And he, and he said, you know, um, it used to be where the focus would be like on that bar star, that star tender, which I think that that word makes us all cringe a bit, right? And now we're really getting back to that focus on teamwork and on the true hospitality that's 
the spirit of what we all do. Yep. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And and Dale obviously um, has always been at the forefront of this. Um, and 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 he has the most wonderful birthday because it, it's my birthday too. <laughs> um, but but yeah, I I, I want to see that change. I think it will. Um, you know, I, I I think at one point I felt much more driven in terms of you know my own recognition and my own kind of passion and what I thought had to happen in a bar um, to make it successful. And now I feel much more comfortable stepping back and let other people's vision um, be a part of it or, or listening to people and, and asking them, like, what, what do we need here? What, you know, what changes do we have to make? Um, and I found as a result of that, um, our bar has become, um, you know, better suited to survive these difficult times. Absolutely. I mean, teamwork is where it's at. You know, if we're going to get through this, um, this pandemic and into what is next, we have to stick together. We have to pull together and it can't be about just one person. It has to be about all of us. And I'm with you. I do hope we see some changes within Congress. I hope something is passed sooner than later to give some sort of a bailout to our industry. For God's sake, they do it with the airlines and all other industries, we sure could use one on this side as well. Yep. And and, and people can support that um, by going to the IRC or the Independent Restaurant Coalition and learning more about that. Um, another another organization that's working to help bars through advocating on their behalf to insurance companies and to the, the government, because um, we never received any insurance payouts. Mm-hmm. for uh, loss of business. And there's lots of controversy around that, but right. um, a group called Thirst uh, that's working towards that. So, so there are people working on behalf and I'm, I'm very happy um, for that. And I, I'm happy to support them and, and get information out there for them. Well, I'm glad that you joined me today, Derek. I want to thank you for being on Served Up, for sharing your passion about prohibition and about our industry as well. And listeners, if you haven't purchased his book, Spirit, Sugar, Water, Bitters, How the Cocktail Conquered the World, makes a great holiday gift. Oh, yes, it does. It makes a good repeal day gift too. (laughs) It does. It absolutely does. So Derek, I want to wish you um, just really great health and peace and happiness, my friend. The same to you, Bridget. Thank you so much and happy repeal day and happy birthday. Thank you, my friend. Thanks for listening. Served Up is brought to you by Southern Glazers Wine and Spirits. Produced by Zunu.online. Music by We Kill the Lion can be found on Spotify. Make sure to subscribe to be notified of future Served Up episodes. Cheers. Cheers.